Good morning, church. How about taking your Bibles and turn to that, the first of those five major prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, the older I get, the more I tend to miss Christmas when I was a child because Christmas when I was a child meant our whole family got together. Maybe you've got one of these families. Christmas was really that only time per year when all of our family descended upon our house usually. We had grandparents there, both sets. We had aunts and uncles. Now, I had a favorite uncle. I, I suppose every little boy growing up probably has a favorite uncle. Maybe a little girl's a favorite aunt or something, but... When I had a nephew, when I became an uncle, I wanted to be that, that favorite uncle. Uh, there was a story about a, a little boy's favorite uncle who came to see him at Christmas, and he said, how about the harmonica that I gave you last year? Do you still have it? The little boy said, absolutely. It's in my nightstand drawer. They went up the stairs to the little boy's bedroom and opened the drawer, and there it was in the original box. He opened up the box, and there lay the harmonica that his favorite uncle had given him a year ago. He said, I want to hear you play it. Do you play it? The little boy's eyes got really big. He said, oh, no, I don't play it. Well, why not? I gave it to you a year ago for Christmas. The little boy said, my mommy gives me a dollar not to play it during the daytime, and my daddy gives me two dollars not to play it at night. So I'm saving up for a drum set. That ought to be a real moneymaker. I hope and pray that your Christmas with your family is everything you hope and want it to be. We started a series of messages a few weeks ago for Christmas by highlighting the attributes of God as they're seen in that baby, common as he may have looked, unremarkable as he may have seemed, the attributes of God, the Father, the Trinity, the nature of God was evident, embodied in that baby born in Bethlehem. Now, I know you're familiar with the Christmas story. You know the chronology. You know the key players. You know the events. But this year, we decided to dive just a little bit deeper into the very attributes of God as they're revealed in the Christmas story. We call it the Incarnation. Incarnation means God in the flesh, deity in, in the flesh. Emmanuel, the name of Jesus, means God with us. In week one, we talked about God's sovereignty. The Bible teaches and the Christmas story demonstrates that God is in complete and total control of our planet. That ought to liberate us. It ought to free us from so much worry, so much anxiety. According to the Christmas story alone, by itself, God is in control, so I ought not be too overly concerned with who sits in the White House. In week two, we talked about mercy. In Christ, God's mercy is personified. Jesus was very merciful to the people with whom he came in contact. Mercy is not pity. It's not as if God pities us. Mercy means that God understands us. He understands our plight. He understands our circumstance. He understands our frail, human, fallible nature. Last time we talked about God's faithfulness. In the very beginning of your Bible, when we chose to disobey God, when man chose to go his own way, God promised to make a way for us to return to him. And Jesus was that way. The Christmas story teaches the faithfulness of God because the very first promise prophecy even in your Bible is a reference to the coming Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Today we're going to talk about holiness. 
Christmas demonstrates the holiness of God. Now, when I use the term holy or holiness, I'm willing to bet most of you think you know exactly what I mean. But I'm willing to bet that many of you aren't as accurate as you think you are. The baby that was born in Bethlehem demonstrates God's holiness and, believe it or not, his intention to make us holy as well. So let's define holiness. When I say holiness, most people think without sin, righteous, not so. Here's a theological definition of holiness. Set apart for God's intended purpose and always true to that purpose. Set apart for God's intended purpose and always true to that purpose. We might also use the word consecrated. Um, This table, for instance. This table is used on this stage in this auditorium when I teach. This table is not used to clean fish on Fridays. With all the construction that's gone on through this building, this table has yet to be used to hold a can of paint. Why? Because it's set apart for a different purpose. When we say that God is holy, yes, we're talking about his righteousness, but it's much more than that. We're talking about the fact that God is set apart to his own purpose and always true to that purpose. There's never been one millisecond in time when God was ungodlike or ungodly. God is always true to himself. He's always true to his purpose for himself. God is holy. He is righteous because he is godlike. God is completely free of contamination. He is completely free of sin. And again, holiness involves righteousness, but follow me. The only reason God is righteous without sin is because he is holy. He is 100% always God-like. He never acts unlike God. He is true to himself. And the Christmas story reveals the holiness of God. You see, Jesus lived for 33 years, and every moment he remained true to the purpose of the Father. Jesus never, even for a split second, acted in any way other than God. Jesus lived as though he was set apart for God's intended purpose, and he remained true to that purpose throughout his lifetime. That's what holiness means. I like the way Eugene Peterson renders John chapter 1 and verse 14. He writes, the word that stands for Jesus. That's why it's capitalized. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one of a kind glory, like father, like son glory. Generous inside, get this part, true from start to finish. In the baby born in Bethlehem was God the Father, and all the attributes that came with him, holiness being one of them. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, you find out very quickly that God's people had a hard time being holy like their God. The book of Leviticus, chapter 11, God told the people, be holy just like I'm holy. But as you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you find out that was the farthest thing from Israel's mind at times. If you were to read through the books of 1 and 2 Kings, uh, we'd read about all the kings of Israel and Judah. It'd be like walking through an ancient graveyard or cemetery. We'd come across one headstone after another. 
Some kings reigned for a very short time, only a couple of years. Other kings reigned for even shorter than that, a few short months. Most of those kings of Israel and Judah were godless kings. They were not holy. They were idolatrous until we come to a man by the name of Uzziah. Uzziah was a good and godly king. Uzziah was beloved by the people of God for 52 years. In fact, Uzziah was so beloved by God's people that many of the people lost sight of their true king, which was God, and they became focused on their earthly king, which was Uzziah. That's what happened to the prophet Isaiah until God, in a vision or a dream, got Isaiah's attention. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Uzziah, uh, Isaiah writes, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This was some sort of dream or some sort of vision that the prophet had in which he was taken to the temple where God resided. This was an incredible experience for Isaiah. And it happened when Uzziah, the beloved king, the honorable king, had died. Interestingly enough, today we don't have those kind of dreams, at least for the most part. The reason is because we already know what God says. We already know what God thinks. We have the completed revelation in our laps, on a bookshelf in our home, we can carry it around in a phone. It can go anywhere we want. If we want to know what God wants, if we want to know what God says, if we want to hear God speak, we can spend time reading it. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Now, the seraphim were a a specific category of angels. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the cherubim, those two bowing angels over the Ark of the Covenant, bowing over the mercy seat. Cherubim and seraphim are various categories of angels. Verse 3, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with, with his glory. The rep repetition there is meant to punctuate. It's meant to emphasize God's holiness. Look at verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is truly an awesome scene. Isaiah is overwhelmed by what he's witnessing. And I use that word specifically because I believe in our popular culture, we have diluted the word awesome. We find a parking space right near the door at the mall during Christmas, and we say, awesome. Not really. We invite somebody out for pizza. I'll see you at 7. They respond, awesome. No, not really. What Isaiah experienced here, witnessing the holiness of God, holy, 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 was truly awesome. In that moment, Isaiah sees himself in contrast to a holy, holy, holy God. Look how he responds, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, 
the Lord Almighty. Isaiah feels like a man who's covered in filth from head to toe. He's disgusting, only to open his eyes and find himself in a stainless steel-filled sterile operating room. He feels more than out of place. He feels disgustingly filthy in light of a God who is holy. This is how he felt. God got his attention. Now, why do we care? What makes that more than an Old Testament account of some old prophet's dream? What does it matter to us that God is holy? I mean, God is holy and he's up there and I can sort of get my mind around that. I can certainly accept or believe that, but what does that have to do with me right here, right now, where I live, which is anything but holy? Well, don't sell it short. It has more to do than you think. The first thing to consider is that God always acts like God. That's what holiness is. You know what that means? That means he can be trusted. Have you noticed that every one of these attributes that we've covered, his sovereignty, his mercy, his faithfulness, and now his holiness points to the fact that our God can be trusted. God will never manipulate you. God will never take advantage of you. God will never ask you to do something that through him you cannot accomplish. He always acts like God, which, by the way, was completely opposite of the temperamental self-serving gods of the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Romans. Jesus was a model of that perfection and God's holiness. Jesus always acted true to the Father's purpose. That's what made him holy. Now, here's why it matters to us. Because I've been called to be holy too. You've been called to be holy as well. It's part of my identity in Christ. If I call myself a follower of Jesus, then I have to accept that I have been called. I've been set apart. God has a new purpose for me, and I must remain true to that purpose. And oh, by the way, I didn't earn that position. I didn't do anything to gain that position. I acquired that position when I embraced Christ by faith. So let me tell you what's at stake today. What's at stake this Christmas for you? It's your identity. It's my identity. It's who I am in Jesus Christ. You see, I believe, as sure as I'm standing here, there are way too many people who are living an empty Christian experience. Way too many. In fact, turn to the back of your Bible now. Go to 1 Peter and go to chapter 1. Peter is all, he wrote, Two epistles at the end of your New Testament, they're almost at the very end. Find 1 Peter and go to chapter 1. Few people today see themselves as holy. I'll bet you you've never introduced yourself, hey, I'm Mike Holt, you can call me holy. Right? That doesn't appear on our resume or our business card. It's not part of our website. We certainly don't highlight it on social media. That's because most of us assume that holiness means sinless. It means perfection. And let's face it, we've been around some people who act like they're perfect, and we don't want any part of that. We've been around some, quote, holy rollers, and we don't want to be part of that either. We think that holy people are fake, and they look down their nose at everyone else, and we're just not interested. Look, let me tell you something. What's at stake here is not your reputation. 
It's not your performance record. What matters here is that your lifestyle, it need not be perfect. It just needs to be authentic. It needs to be real. It needs to be intentional with an understanding that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm called to be holy. That means God has a purpose for me. He's got a purpose for my marriage. He's got a purpose for, for how I handle money. He's got a purpose for what I, how I take care of my body. He's got a purpose for how I date. He's got a purpose for all of these things. And to be holy is to try my best to remain true to that original intended purpose. The believers in Peter's day had forgotten who they were. They were suffering intense persecution simply because of their faith. But in addition, they had made some lousy lifestyle choices, and now they were beginning to pay for it. In order to help them regain their identity, Peter, the apostle, wrote them the following letter. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Church, does everybody understand that Jesus Christ is one day going to return for his church? He is going to be reunited with the bride of Christ. He being the groom, the church is the bride. One day, could be today, Jesus Christ is going to return to gather his church. We might not even see Christmas this year because Jesus Christ is going to return. There are 316 Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the first coming of Jesus. There are more than three times that many in the Bible that point to the second coming of Jesus. It's for real. Look at verse 14. As obedient children then, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you once lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Just as God is holy, you be holy too. Again, remember, holiness means set apart for an original purpose. Holiness should define my intention. It should define my new nature, my new conduct. Holiness should emphasize the contrast between how I do life now versus how I did life prior to Christ. And again, holiness has nothing to do with looking down on other people. Holiness is about an understanding of who I am in Christ and then reorienting my life and lifestyle to reflect God's purposes in me. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. It's written in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 11, to be specific. You see, according to Peter, if you are a follower of Christ, then your life has been set apart for a specific purpose in reference to God. And if you are a follower of Christ, there are some things that just ought not be so about you. When I look around the church and I see a husband and a wife and they know their marriage is dissolving and neither one of them is willing to do anything about it, neither one of them is willing to humble themselves, seek the kind of counsel that's necessary to rebuild what is so valuable in the eyes of God, my friends, that ought not be so. When I look around and see a family who's, who's, who's faced a critical, crippling financial setback, 
And all I get from them is worry and concern and agony and anxiety. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that ought not be so. People who are hopeless, a defeated attitude, a hopeless outlook, a feeling that whatever sin has got a grip on me, whatever addiction has gripped my life, that I I have no power over it. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That ought not be so. If any one of those defines your current position, maybe it's simply because you've lost your identity in Christ. You've forgotten whose child you really are. You've forgotten that as he is holy, he has separated you and called you to be holy as well. In order to try and accomplish this, I'm not saying it's easy, but in order to try and accomplish this, Peter tells us exactly what to do from verse 13. The first thing Peter says is if you're going to be holy, if you're going to live the life that God has called you to live, he set you apart, he has a purpose. If you're going to do this, you need, number one, a ready mind. You need to be ready. You see verse 13? With minds that are alert. Literally, in the Greek language, gird up your mind. It's an old, ancient way of saying things. Sometimes in the Bible, they would use the phrase, gird up your loins. And what that means is that refers to the way people dressed back then. They would wear this, like a man would wear this long night shirt and his sandals. Then he would have a robe over top of that. And when he had to move in a hurry, when he had to make haste, he'd gather up his robes. He'd gird up his robes right here at his stomach, and that way he could run. He could go quickly. What Peter is saying is think it through first. Go ahead and prepare your mind. A ready mind is one that's planned in advance a course of action, one that's determined a mindset, one that's ready. One of the reasons, church... We fall into unintended sin is because we never thought it through and intended not to. You understand? How many times have we said, man, I regret that. I never intended to do that or say that. Here's the problem. You never intended not to do it or not to say it. That's what Peter describes when he says, make sure your mind is alert. Make sure your mind is ready. When I was a little boy, my dad took me to a big firehouse. And we have several firemen that attend this church, and I've been to both the Statesboro Firehouses and the Metter Firehouse. I'm fascinated by this scene. You've got all these people in the wreck area. There are couches and ping pong tables. There's lots of good food. Firemen know how to eat, right? There are a lot of different body shapes and sizes, different ages represented, different worldviews even. But in a split second, that bell could ring and they all act and they all intuitively know their lives are at risk. Their lives are in danger. But you'd never know it watching them play ping pong or listening to them argue over a ball game. You see, the reason firemen The reason firefighters don't cringe when they hear the sound of that bell is because they've prepared their mind. They know who they are. They trust their training. And you can trust yours. They've conditioned themselves. They've already thought it through. Sometimes we don't act holy because we forget we are holy. We're doing nothing intentionally to remind us that God has set us apart He's got a plan for us. That's why, if you're wondering, like, okay, Mike, I agree, yes, but how? 
YBH, yes, but how? How do I do that? How do I make my mind ready? That's what our plus one initiative is all about. You nourish your faith first. You put it in there now so you can draw on it later. That's what family night is, and that's what smaller groups are, and that's what personal Bible study is all about. It's about nourishing your faith. It's about intending not to so you don't. Here's something else. Engage your church. Do you know how many people over the years have said, Mike, look, I've gone to church mostly my whole life, but I never really got it till I got involved in this church. Because when I got involved with those kids or with those teenagers or with the music, when I developed those relationships, that's when I began to understand. That's when I began to appreciate accountability. That's when I began to grow in my faith. That's when I began to meet other people. And then number three, keep short accounts with God. Church, don't be the kind of person who lives their entire day doing their thing chasing their agenda, and then lays down at night and prays and asks God to bless it. He's been with you all day long. Keep short accounts with him throughout your day. A ready mind is one that brings confidence, lasting results. You are very capable in Christ of strengthening your marriage, of overcoming whatever difficulty you're facing. That's what you need. Your battle is won or lost in your mind first. So, Peter says, you want to be holy? Have an alert mind, a ready mind. Then he says, a sober mind. That's number two, a disciplined lifestyle. Fully sober. Peter instructs believers to be steadfast, to be self-controlled, to be self-disciplined, to be morally decisive. Follow me here. The sober follower of Jesus is in charge of his priorities. He's not intoxicated with the allurements of the world and the flesh. In recent weeks, we've enjoyed the World Cup. And the World Cup, like the Olympic Games, both summer and winter, they only come around once every four years. And the whole world tunes in. These athletes are world class. And they're under a firestorm of controversy and scrutiny because some of them are looking for a shortcut to success through steroids and doping. And so these athletes are tested, and they're tested. And now I've recently learned that there are labs around our world that are so skilled and so knowledgeable about how to match certain chemistry to a certain biological chemistry of an athlete, and they can deliver that, that chemical in an almost undetectable way, and that's why so many athletes take that path, because they're looking for a result now. They're looking for a product now. Others, on the other hand, they trust the process. They're in it long term. They're training hard. They're working at it. They don't stop. Their mindset is long term. To them, the process of being a winner is more important than the product of becoming a winner. Here's what I'll leave you with. Remember, when it comes to holiness, God is way more concerned about the process of it, not the product. When it comes to holiness, God is more concerned with the process than the product. Holiness is not something that, can, that you can fake. That's what turned you off from church in the first place, probably. You got around a bunch of religious people who injected this sort of stereotypical holiness they look down on their noses at you, and you didn't want any part of that. That is not true biblical holiness. It's a process. 
There's no shortcut to this. It's going to take a disciplined lifestyle to do marriage the way God says do it. It's going to take a disciplined lifestyle to handle money the way God says to handle it. So a ready mind, a disciplined lifestyle, and number three is a future hope. The end of verse 13. Set your hope on the grace that's coming with Christ. Set your hope. In light of the faith we have in Christ, we ought to be able to live unreservedly looking toward the future. Do you know the Bible promises a special kind of crown, a special kind of reward one day for those who live looking for the coming of Christ? Those who truly understand that, you know what our world really needs? Our world needs a second coming. You know what will solve all the problems in this world? The second coming of Jesus. A future hope. That's how you find optimism. And if you If you haven't experienced this, then you may not understand. But if you're true, if you remain true to God's calling, if that's your intention, then it is impossible to live without hope. Because remember, God can be trusted. And so if God tells me to do it this way, God tells me to handle difficult people this way, then I can live with hope. Because I'm true to his calling on my life. One of my favorite books, perhaps you've read it yourself, is the world bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life. In that book, Rick Warren tells a story about autopilot in an airplane. If you've ever flown in an airplane with autopilot, you can set your direction to east, even a much more specific destination than that, flip a switch, and the plane will fly by itself to that destination. Now, if you're traveling east in an airplane and you decide mid-flight that you want to go west, there are only two ways to change direction. You can grab that yoke and you can forcibly turn that plane around. But as you begin now flying west, that plane's going to continue to fight you. That plane is going to continue to overpower you. I mean, the veins are going to be popping out of your head. You're going to be holding on for dear life, forcing that plane to go in an opposite direction to which it has been programmed. This is how we try to bring about life change ourselves through sheer willpower. We say, I will force myself to eat less. I will force myself to exercise. I will force myself to be more patient, to be more organized, to be on time. And it fights us the entire way. Our body, our wiring, our baseline, our DNA maybe, I don't know, fights us continually as we try and overcome that autopilot that has been originally programmed. Now, there's another way to change the direction of that airplane. Change the autopilot. Change the setting on the autopilot. Long before psychologists understood this, the Bible says things like, if you want to change how you act, change how you think. Because what you think determines how you feel, and how you feel usually determines what you do. As a follower of Christ, when I respond to God's call to holiness, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm readjusting my autopilot. I'm changing my autopilot. I'm saying, this used to be important to me in marriage, but God has called me to something new. Now, this is important to me in marriage. And that, my friend, changes everything. Here's the way Warren Wearsby, Dr. Wearsby puts it. 
Our values determine our evaluations. I could talk for a half hour on that one simple sentence. Whatever you've decided is a value, whatever you've decided is important, that's what's going to shape your evaluations of your surroundings. He goes on. If we value comfort more than character, then trials are going to upset us. If we live only for the present and forget about the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. You realize, to some degree, that's what I'm trying to do every Sunday in this auditorium. I'm I'm challenging you to adjust your belief paradigm. I try and present you with a relevant scenario. I say, here's what the Bible says about it. Now let's contrast that to how we normally would, would respond. And when you leave here, figure out what you need to do. Many, many years ago, when I was about 22, I had worked for a man in Florida named John Edwards. And over the course of that six-year employment, he taught me how to fly. A twin-engine Cessna 310, hot little plane. It cruised at about 260, 280. John told me, if you learn to fly this thing, you'll be able to fly any plane smaller than this. And I had logged many, many, many hours flying around the state of Florida. We would fly to South Florida and drop off equipment or drop off paychecks or, or meet with a client. We would fly to Jacksonville, and then we'd return to Tampa. And all this might happen in a day. And uh, as a 22-year-old young man, I mean, I was stoked. This was awesome. Learning to fly an airplane was one of the, the, the greatest thrills of my, my life. Well, I was coming into the Vandenberg Airport, which is right outside of Tampa, to land the plane. That's where it was hangered. That's where it was kept. And we were Flying in from West Palm Beach is where we started this journey. And all the way across the state, it's basically a direct shot from east to west, the thunderstorms began building and boiling and rolling off of my wingtip. The sky was black, and we were racing at home, basically. The, the flight was rough the entire way, but I had flown many, many hours. I knew how to control the airplane. It didn't bother me a bit. Finally, the Air traffic controller at the airport says you're clear for landing, but be advised, there are wind shear in the area. Now, I didn't know what a wind shear was. Later, I learned that a wind shear is when winds collide, some from the east, some from the west, and they separate, and part of them go up and part of them go down. And if your plane flies into a wind shear, it'll flip on its side in an instant. So I was bringing that plane down in for a landing, and I got really close to the runway, probably no more than a couple hundred feet, and that's when I hit the wind shear. And the plane, in a split second, rolled on its side, and what did I do? I'd like to tell you I pulled it out and landed it safely. I panicked, is what I did. I forgot who I was. I forgot that I knew how to control that airplane. I forgot that I had put that airplane on its side intentionally before. But in that moment of panic, thankfully, my co-pilot, John, did not. John casually grabbed the controls. He took the plane down mere feet from the runway, brought it back up, circled around, and we landed safely. In that moment, I lost my identity. Thankfully, John did not. Church, one of the greatest Christmas gifts I could ever give you as your pastor is simply to remind you of who you are in Christ. You've been set apart. You've been called to something better. Be holy as he is holy. Wow, what a blessing that is. What a gift that is. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, as we leave this day,
make it clear in our minds, remove all the clutter, all the doubt, all the confusion, the things we tell ourselves that, oh, we can't do that, or that's not for us, or that's only for religious people. Father, shield us from that line of thinking. Give us a ready mind. Help us develop a disciplined lifestyle. And may we always remain focused on our future hope. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. I will see you Christmas Eve in this room. Have a great week.